You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good afternoon almost. Uh, my name is Ian, the pastor here at City Church, and we are in a series called Stuck in the Middle, where we're talking about the reality of living as Christians in between the first coming of Jesus, which is Christmas, the baby born in the manger in Bethlehem, and the second coming of Christ, which we are promised uh, will happen one day. I want to thank you for being at the 1130 service. Our 10 o'clock service is absolutely nutso, uh, so we really need people to be at 830 and 1130, so thank you for that. Uh, it's just helpful for the big picture of what we're uh, trying to do here in terms of creating a church that as many people as possible can attend and hear the gospel and be discipled and all those important things. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will uh, jump into our third week of Stuck in the Middle. Father, we are grateful for your word that you've given us, what a gift it is to have the words of our creator, and I ask we'll be good stewards of that reality, that we'll take the scriptures seriously uh, because we take you seriously, because your glory is great, uh, your love for us is real, and your plan is better than any plan this world has to offer. Let us really believe that, let myself included, let all of us actually believe that. And I ask that you be with all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today, keep the enemy out of this place and out of our city, and that you will help us uh, figure out uh, through the scriptures, how to live faithfully in this world you've placed us in. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm excited for our college ministry kicking off this week at Langford uh, outside the stadium. Uh, one of my favorite all-time memories of this church actually is tied to that event. That's an outdoor service in front of the unconquered statue of Florida State. And it's when we had uh, President John Thrasher, who was then president of the university, uh, he did the welcome for us. And he's a Christian, so we trust him to do that. And we just kind of thought to go up there and say, hey, you know, on behalf of Florida State, welcome to you new freshman, you know, that kind of idea, and then just kind of move on. So he goes up there, and he says, I'd like to welcome you to this event. It's a really neat thing to have here. It's our, it's our evangelical, like distinctly evangelical church having a worship service at Florida State. And the president of the university comes up, and he says, welcome, glad you're here. He says, I'm standing in front of the unconquered statue. There's only one who's ever been unconquered, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we were like get out. He just say that, you know, that was awesome, you know, so what, what a great, what a great influence that, that uh, people can have for Christ if they use the position that God has given them, you know, for, for the good news, and we want to be right on campus uh, to uh, make the gospel known to many people Jesus loves, and we're excited to be a part of that. So we've been redeemed by the cross of Christ, but we await Christ's return and our full redemption. By that, it means that, by that, I mean that every promise we have of our salvation is true right now. Like, we have been made right with God. We've been forgiven of our sins. We've been made new creations. As a Christian, you can have full confidence in that, in your redemption, in that salvation. But the full understanding and realization of that is in a world yet to come. When Jesus returns, it makes all things new. Theologians refer to it as already, not yet. So all the promises of God are right now, but the full realization of it is not yet. So in the meantime, here we are in the middle, caught in the middle, living life in the middle, and they can oftentimes feel like we're stuck in the middle, uh, in between two places, trying to be faithful for God, and we're surrounded by so much in this world. Carl Henry wrote this. He said, stand firm in the recognition that while we are pilgrims here, we're ambassadors also. That yes, we're in a world that's not our home. We're in a land that is not ultimately our land. Uh, we have, we live in a, we're a part of a spiritual land, a land that is to come, but we're not just meant to be here and be residents here, but to be ambassadors for Christ here, which is important to understand. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 uh, for this time together. We're going to work through uh, some of this text, uh, starting in verse 18. If you have your Bibles or want to follow along on your phone or scroll or on the screen, all the above, I'm thankful God gives us many options nowadays uh, to have the scripture. So Philippians chapter 3, 
starting in verse 18. For I have often told you, this is Paul writing from prison uh, to the church in Philippi, I have often told you and now say again, so some kind of correspondence that's happened before, some sort of relationship that's been in place, I now say again with tears. That little detail matters. So notice he's not coming here from a judgmental posture. He's not coming here to look down on everyone he's writing this letter to. He is hurting. Like there's brokenness here in Paul for the state of affairs of, of the surrounding world. And he's going to tell us about what that world looks like. He says, I'm writing with tears this message. That many, and he says, I'm going to call it what it is, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And when he calls them enemies, he's not suggesting some sort of religious war, holy war that's taking place here. He's talking about how functionally there's no neutrality. Either we live for the Lord or we live for this world. And for those who have rejected Christ, what they truly are ultimately is enemies of Christ. Aren't you thankful that Jesus loves his enemies and went to a cross to die for those enemies if we'll put our trust and hope in him? Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction. Like that's where this leads. Rebellion against God ultimately leads to destruction, being punished for our sins. If we will believe that Jesus was punished in our place and put our trust in him, or we will face our own punishment for our sins. Their end is destruction. He says their God is their stomach. And he's not claiming these people love buffets too much or haven't done enough planks. He's not talking about that. He's talking about this continual consumption. Their God is themselves. They have the assumption that all this world is just for their taking, for their consumption. Their, he says ultimately here, kind of lands the plane on the problem. He says they're focused on earthly things. That's what's really going on. Why is their God their stomach? Why are they enemies of the cross of Christ? Because their focus is on the things of this world. And that's where their gods, lowercase g, are located. And that's where their attention is being fixed. So Paul's writing to them going, do you understand? Well, this is what rebellion against God looks like. Like, this is the epitome of it. Then he makes a contrast and says, our, in verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some, uh, some already not yet, some stuck in the middle happening just in that verse. Where he says, now, contrast to those who are, whose hope is in this world, our citizenship, what we're a part of, is in a world to come. So in the meantime, we eagerly wait for Christ. God's people way before us, way before the coming of Jesus, long for the first coming of Christ. They didn't understand everything all the time. They knew that a Messiah would come, that he was promised. Sadly, many of them rejected him when he came, but they longed for that first coming. The Old Testament is basically the story of the longing for God's promises to be fulfilled in Jesus. And now we living as Christians, after that has already taken place, after he came here, how, how, how he took on flesh and dwelt among us, as the scriptures say, died for our sins, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, is coming again. Now we're waiting eagerly for that return. It says he will transform the body of our humble condition. We're gonna get new bodies. We don't know exactly what they look like, but the, ba- the best maybe idea we have is what Jesus looked like after his resurrection. Again, we don't have a picture of it, uh, but we know that he had a transformed body and people still recognized him. They knew who he was. So we will have our body or our humble condition in the likeness of his glorious body. So we're promised that what we saw post-resurrection will be for us one day, our own resurrection. By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So an authority there. that Everything is subject to Christ's feet. 
So we see the strong contrast, the strong kind of rivalry here between earthly things and heavenly things. And they're constantly at conflict with one another. And it can be pretty loud, you know, boom, collision, oftentimes. And we see in verse 19 the use of the word there. There. He says, their end is destruction. He says that their God is their stomach. He says their glory is their shame. It's a glory issue. Rather than being about God's glory, they want to reflect their own glory. And then he uses the word they. They are focused on earthly things. He's saying, okay, there are, there are these types of people. And then he says our. Verse 19 and verse 20. Their compared to our. Earthly things for us. We're focused on Christ. Citizenship is the basis for this. That our citizenship is not of this world, it was of a world to come. It's of the kingdom of God. And also the authority in verse 21. We submit ourselves under Christ's authority rather than the authority ultimately of what this world thinks popularly. So a strong contrast here with the things we could call of Babylon versus the things of God. Now Babylon was a real place in the scriptures, a real secular, thriving, cosmopolitan, you name it, false gods. I say secular, but it's actually the worship of polytheistic, multiple gods, and it also is used as sort of a metaphor further along in scripture of the secular city, of what it looks like to be in rebellion against God and to have your allegiance to this world rather than to Christ. So we see in Philippians 3 this tension of Babylon versus the things of God, the great battle for our hearts and lives, and he makes a clear distinction between one world and another world and how they're definitely different, but here's what makes this so complicated for all of us, including myself. We live in this world. Like, our citizenship is not here, but God has us here. Like, our address is in Babylon. And here God has us at this time in the middle. So when it comes to living for the world, which I know I'm tempted with so often, I'm sure you are too, we regularly see Christians fall into Babylon. It's going to look different in how it comes about from generation to generation and really from culture to culture and even from individual to individual. But they usually, in my experience, run along this process. We could say these are kind of the mile markers on the road to Babylon for those who are Christians and are forgetting their citizenship. The first one is dis distance yourself from God. Distance yourself from God. That can come from a bad experience. That can come from maybe be ashamed of your sins, whatever it could be. Uh, but something happens in your life that moves you away from the church, moves you away from prayer, away from Christian fellowship, away from Bible reading. It could be your own rebellion, whatever it might be. But kind of the first step is we distance ourselves from God. Notice I did not say that God distanced himself from us. We're the ones who distance ourselves from him. The next step is it becomes the inevitable. Now you do your own thing. As in you do you. I still don't exactly know what you do you means, but you do you. That's kind of the mantra of today. Distance yourself from God. Now I get to basically call the shots and do whatever I want to do. Functionally, I become my own God as I distance myself from the true God. Then the next step on the road to Babylon is you redefine right and wrong based upon what you desire or feel. Used to, people used to say, what I think, therefore I am. Now it's whatever I feel in the moment, therefore I am. And then this, sadly, is usually the last step. You dismiss Christian friends who don't agree with your trajectory, choices, 
and lifestyle because they must be the problem. The road to Babylon, those are the mile markers along the way. And we have to understand that this is not what God has for his people. This is not his will for us to be focused on earthly things. This trajection is not what he has in store for us. We're on a different trajection, one that follows Christ and picks up our cross and joyfully follows him. So we have got to almost rebel against that four-step process by pointing to a different way. And there's two postures we need to practice in doing that. And the first one is we must stand in opposition and counter to Babylon. We must. Not in a combative way, in a convictional way. As Christians, we do dissent against certain things because we believe it leads to destruction. And out of eight, Paul's running with tears to these people, pleading with them, pointing them to something else. As Christians, we must be that way. We must dissent. We can't pretend that all is okay when it's not. Because people right now are rebelling against God. That's our own story before coming to faith. Even as people who are people of faith, we still can be prone to rebel against God. And outside of sinful hearts being the main reason we rebel, there are two main things in the scriptures we see cause this rebellion in the scriptures, in the Bible. The first is that people forget, they forgot about God. See, it'll happen all the time in the Old Testament where God will say, don't you remember this? I'm the one who led you out of Egypt. I'm the one who provided for you. I'm the one who's preparing a land for you. And you have forgotten over and over and over again how good I am and that I'm for my people and that I'm better than anything this world has to offer. There's that kind of spiritual amnesia we all deal with. I say this almost every week. We believe those lies. There's more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. And I gotta go around God rather than actually write to him for the things I'm desiring in my life. We forget God. It's not new. It's happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. Thousands. The second thing is that we see the people were influenced by surrounding nations. So we see God telling them not to be associated and intermingle with those foreign tribes, and it has nothing to do with ethnicity or race. Nothing at all. It has to do with worship. Because from the surrounding nations was false and pagan gods. And idol worship. And because we're vulnerable as human beings, what would happen? The more we were influenced, the people would be influenced by it, the more they became like them. They became like them. Rather than a distinct people of God, they all of a sudden started looking like the nations around them. Forgetting about God and being influenced by the people of Babylon, truly. Remember, Henry said, stand firm in the recognition that while we are pilgrims here, we're ambassadors also. Yes, we're supposed to be different and distinct, but we do also dissent. Why ambassadors aren't quiet? They have the interests of the nation they're representing as their actual job. Like you, if you are the American ambassador to, let's make up a place, to Portugal, you are there representing the interests of your country in that foreign land while still remaining a citizen of your ultimate home. Paul wrote this, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. What an amazing thought, that God would allow us to be called his ambassadors. Since God's making his appeal through us, through our lives, through our words, we plead on Christ's behalf. Remember that, he wrote a person with tears to Philippians. Now he's pleading with them. Be reconciled to God. 
be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. He has taken two hostile parties and brought them together. We have sinned against God and have broke our relationship with him, but God in his love is not punishing us as our sins deserve. But punishing Jesus in our place who never sinned, as he's about to tell us, that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our glory is not our shame. Our glory is in the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, because now I receive his righteousness. I'm not who I used to be. I am in Christ. What an amazing truth. What an amazing thing to know. And Paul wants the people to know this and receive this and understand this. Because ambassadors aren't just walking around saying, hey, let's make the world a better place. They're pointing to Christ. The representatives of God. We must have a faithful public witness. And should we care about how we're perceived? Yes, of course. But should our actions and words be driven solely by how we're perceived? Never. Never. My friend Trevin Wax, I quoted him last week, but he's been cranking out some good stuff, so I'm quoting him again this week. And he wrote this, the polarization of American Christianity, which is definitely a thing, makes me wonder if the frequent concern voiced about Christianity's public witness are motivated not so much by the grace of God, and the glory of the gospel, as in getting the gospel out, what we believe, that we're failing to do that, that kind of idea, but by embarrassment at evangelicals who are insufficiently doxal towards elite secular opinion. And how many Christians flock to Babylon, not because they stopped necessarily believing certain things about Jesus, but because they really became obsessed with what the world thinks of them. It just became a thing. They wanted to be liked. I want to be liked. Who doesn't want to be liked? But when that starts to alter our convictions and our lifestyles and our beliefs, we find ourselves on that trail to the secular city. So we must remain convictional. We must refuse to compromise. We must capitalize on every opportunity to point people to God's love, to point people to God's power to redeem and to reconcile and restore what's broken. We don't want to merely engage Tallahassee. We want to see Tallahassee changed. And the world changed for Jesus Christ. It was Chesterton who said, we don't want a church that moves with the world, but one that will move the world. People want to be a part of something different. They realize that just sort of pop Christianity, kind of a TED Talk version of be a better version of you, doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's never designed to work. The power is in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection and we must be unashamed of that because that's the only thing that can ultimately change our world. Paul wrote this to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, that's Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny so that it leads to something. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way, here's the middle part, in the present age, in this middle where we find ourselves. While, again, we're looking, we're anticipating, we wait for the blessed hope, remember he said that we eagerly wait in Philippians 3, eagerly, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us 
from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people of his own possession, eager to do good works, that in Babylon, God is making a people for himself, drawing them out of it spiritually by his grace, by his sovereignty, who now want to bring glory to Christ because they're his people. Look at what he says in verse 15. He doesn't say, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. Rather, he says, proclaim these things. Proclaim these things. Because faith comes by hearing, Romans 10 says, and hearing by the word of God. He says, encourage, gosh, do we need that, and rebuke, gosh, do we need that, with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Why? Because you're God's people, and Jesus is alive. So number one, I said that we stand in opposition, but there's a second thing, and they're not, in con- they're not in contradiction. We stand with arms wide open, ready to love and ready to receive what I call the refugees of Babylon. Because Babylon breeds brokenness. Babylon breeds brokenness. And I guarantee you there are stories across this room of brokenness. Of people that the Lord brought out of desperate situations to scary situations, just uncertainty or rebellion or whatever it could have been. And how did he bring you in? With arms wide open. I like to say that we're in the bear hug business around here. If God doesn't punish us as our sins deserve and doesn't count our sins against us and makes us new, why should we hold your former sins over your head? People that want to come to the Lord and repent of their sins and go, man, I'm, I'm in, I'm back. I'm, I wandered, I, I wayward, I, I'm back. Or maybe you're, you're understanding this whole idea for the first time. We have an arms wide open Savior, so we should go and do likewise. Because in this broken world we're in, we're going to keep seeing refugees from Babylon. Spiritual refugees who all of a sudden say the world was not worth its hype. The sexual revolution was not as advertised. You do you didn't really work out for me in the long haul. Do whatever more makes you happy. I still can't figure out what that is and I'm still doing more. Arms wide open. Did you know that right now if that's you, that God is arms wide open for you, the scriptures tell us. The story of the prodigal son, the rebellious son who all of a sudden says, I want to focus on the things of this world and believe that everything's for my consumption. There's a lot of that story. We could spend three months on it, but the big idea is he rebelled against his family. He ran far away. He loved the world and finally realized this is not as it was all hyped up to be. And what happens from there? He finally realizes by God's grace that he needs to go home. And what happens when he goes home? Who's waiting for him? His father, who in that story metaphorically represents our father, our heavenly father, with arms wide open. With arms wide open. And we see this when Jesus was even questioned about this type of posture. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, which is good news for all of us. We'd be in big trouble. We couldn't achieve righteousness on our own, so we had to depend on a foreign righteousness that Christ has given us. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I am convinced, and I would not pastor a church that didn't feel the same way, I wouldn't be able to handle it, that this gospel is for everyone in the fact that nobody is too far away. 
No one's too far away. It's not too late to follow Jesus. On this side of eternity, there's always still an opportunity to follow Christ. Why not do it now? Or if you have followed Jesus before, why not, and then you've kind of wandered, not really sure, why not say, you know what, this world is not as as advertised. You've learned it the hard way, maybe you haven't learned it yet, but you know it, like you know. So you've got to keep digging and keep trying and keep looking for applause and quit, and you've got to keep distancing yourself from God. More you do you. You've distanced yourselves. You've distanced yourself from all Christians that have an opinion about it and care about you enough to tell you this is not the way of God. You're pushing away and pushing away and blaming and blaming, and here is God. Here's God, with arms wide open to receive you back. But it was costly. It was costly. Jesus gave his life, so that could be possible. So we, yes, we dissent, and yes, we bear hug. So the kind of the two postures in this world, there's many postures for Christians. There's postures of humility, and there's postures of worship, and Postures of open hands when it comes to generosity, but in this context, there's two postures when it comes to basically being stuck in the middle in Babylon and refusing to give in to it. And the first one's one of dissent, right there, boom, nope. And then one of open arms. And those are not in contrast to each other because guess who was that? Jesus. Jesus was a, Jesus made spoke for truth told people the truth, called out things when he saw it, called people to repentance, and then he had his arms wide open to welcome him into his family. It's the people who are about both. We, if we're going to be an effective church in the future, we have to be willing to embrace the refugees of Babylon because they're going to keep coming because this world has always been broken since the fall happened in the Garden of Eden, but just, like, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? More fighting, more few, there's just more tensions, more uncertainty, more idol worship. It's over and over and over. Guess what? We have the answer, and his name is Jesus. I'd love for you to talk to somebody today in the care room out in the lobby after the service. They can pray with you, get you on the right steps, whatever it could be. For those of you that maybe are, are saying, okay, I, you know, I'm trying to follow Christ. I'm just I'm trying my best. And yeah, just, my encouragement to you is just to keep looking at Jesus. Just keep in the grace of God. Keep, there, is a, there is a striving to it. Like, keep, keep going. Grace-fueled. Because we're not saved by our efforts. We're saved by the efforts of Jesus. And now we're saved to go deny godlessness and live our lives for Christ. So I just encourage you to, to give church a chance this fall. Say it's going to be priority in my life. And also give others a chance. Don't give up on anybody. Because we're arms wide open people. Like, nobody's too far from God. Well, we're all too far from God on our own. What I mean is no one is too far from God's redemption. No one's too far. So let's be serious about that and make that known. Standing in dissent against the idolatry of this world, standing with arms wide open with grace like Jesus. I'm glad he did that with me. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for grace. And we're thankful for the fact that it wasn't the healthy who needed a doctor. That it was the sinners, it was the sick, the spiritually dead, the scriptures even tell us. So we're thankful you didn't come to give us medicine, you came to give us life, to make us alive. So we fully depend on Christ for our salvation. We ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit so we won't carry out the desires of the flesh, as the Bible says. And we're thankful that you are, are an arms wide open God. So Lord, I ask that your kindness, those arms wide open will lead us to repentance and that we'll stop believing the hype of this world. Lord, please get us back on track, those who need to be. 
Please allow us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For those who are in a pretty decent place right now in terms of their fellowship with you, I ask that continues, that we won't grow weary. Lord, I ask that you'll remind us that all this is worth it because Jesus is alive and he's coming again. We need that reminder. And we're thankful for all this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing some good news.